You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the rest of her life, she never forgot the screams. They echoed in her head whenever she closed her eyes at night. At 22, Dorothy Gibson had already made it to the silver screen. Life had been full of promise. Now, as she sat in lifeboat number seven at two in the morning, shivering in nothing more than an evening gown and coat, none of that mattered. The men on the ship's deck frantically yelled to the oarsmen below, row hard and fast. They feared the icy, swirling water around the sinking ship would pull the lifeboat down with it. The men groaned and strained to row faster, but Dorothy couldn't take her eyes from the ship. Lifeboat number seven had been the last to leave the Titanic. People gathered at the railings, some looking for more lifeboats, some just watching the ones already in the water slip away. Dorothy didn't have to be close enough to see their expressions. Without more lifeboats, the remaining passengers knew they were going to die. All 20 lifeboats had been deployed. Just 20 for 2,228 passengers. Even had they all been filled to capacity, only about half the passengers could have escaped, but many were lowered sooner in panic. Women, children, and first-class passengers were given priority, but even among them, there were casualties. Some of the richest people in the world had bought a ticket on the Titanic's maiden voyage, yet no amount of money could buy all of them a spot off of it. Another survivor, Elizabeth Schutz, recalled the cries as well. One of the men in the lifeboat yelled, She's gone, lads. Row like hell or we'll get the devil of a swell. When they had rowed a little further, fear welled up in the women. Except for the other lifeboats bobbing on the Sea of Black, there were no other ships. No one knew how to navigate by the stars. The men's fingers became so cold that they could no longer hold on to the oars. Some slipped from their hands and disappeared into the dark water below. Twenty lifeboats were now adrift in a vast ocean, the passengers exposed to freezing temperatures. The ship was huge, over a thousand feet. Through the screaming, the band still played while men in tuxedos and women in gowns cried and held onto the railings and each other. The musicians would later be listed as heroic. They died trying to offer some calm, some sense of normalcy to the doomed passengers on the deck, who had no way off the ship. White Star Cruise Lines had planned everything aboard the Titanic. The luxuries were second to none. They'd provided a gym, smoking lounges, reading rooms, and staterooms with their own promenades. On the middle deck, passengers could enjoy two diners, a swimming pool, Turkish baths, or visit their dogs at the kennels. Of course, there was also the ballroom with its grand staircase for first-class passengers. They'd thought of everything, it seems, 
except enough lifeboats, or red flares to signal an emergency. They'd put all the importance on comfort and accommodations instead of safety. The cruise line insisted the Titanic was unsinkable, and any lifeboats at all were merely a precaution. The number of people left on the deck that night was a fraction of the people still on board. Employees, along with second- and third-class passengers, were trapped in the decks below. Even after the ship had started to sink, certain passageways in the lower areas remained blocked. People flailed in the water, screaming for help from the nearby lifeboats. The oarsmen on all but one kept going, afraid that the panicked victims would capsize them in their frantic attempts to climb in. Lifeboat number four returned, pulling five people from the freezing water, but sadly, two of them still died. A survivor on lifeboat 13 would later swear it was his new lucky number. Around three in the morning, Dorothy, Elizabeth, and the others watched the Titanic slide beneath the icy surface, the lights aboard the ship shining eerily from below for a brief moment before going out. The cries for help stopped, and the waters grew quiet. The Titanic and all still aboard were gone. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. The USS Eastland had been late to the docks for the annual Western Electric Company's Hawthorne Works factory picnic in 1914. To ensure it wouldn't be late for the 1915 event, the excursion company called for the ship to arrive earlier. The ship hadn't been late the previous year because of a lack of capacity for speed. Once, the steamer held the nickname the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes. But lately, those who knew the Eastland's history quietly called it something else, the Hoodoo Boat. Commissioned in 1903, the Eastland had issues right from the start. While at port, the ship collided with another boat. Although the steamer suffered minor damage, the other boat sank. After repairs, the Eastland went into service as a cruise ship. In August of 1903, the firemen aboard refused to stoke the fire for the ship's boilers in retaliation for not being served potatoes with their dinner. When the ship reached port, the captain had them arrested at gunpoint and charged with mutiny. Not long after, the captain was replaced. That maiden year, the Eastland was anything but fast. It didn't meet the targeted speed it had been designed for, 22 miles an hour. Fast steamers were popular and highly sought after in the early 1900s. As a cruise ship, there were other issues. The ship's draft. That's the distance between the deepest part of the boat and the waterline. The Eastland's longer draft prevented it from cruising the Black River in South Haven, Michigan. In late 1903, the ship pulled into Port Huron for modifications to reduce the draft and increase speed. Those modifications came at a cost, though. The changes went against the original design, making the steamer heavier and reducing the ship's stability. With the new modifications, though, the Eastland returned to South Haven the following year and easily defeated another ship in a race. That impressive victory earned the ship the nickname, the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes. Satisfied with the win and modifications, the owners put the Eastland back into service. Problems stemming from the modifications showed up later that year. Out on a cruise, the ship nearly capsized with 3,000 people aboard. 
to keep the modifications but lose some of the weight, the owners reduced the maximum capacity to 2,800 passengers and removed the cabins. As a precaution in case the ship listed in the future, lifeboats were added. It's hard for you and me to imagine that ships didn't have lifeboats or rafts, especially after the tragedy of the Titanic. But changes to existing ships cost money, and that ate into profits. The meager reductions in weight didn't stop the Eastland from listing. It was sold to the Chicago South Haven line, and the ship nearly capsized again, causing formal complaints against the company. The ship's seemingly cursed history earned it the nickname the Hoodoo Boat around this point. And the incidents continued. The new owners had some of the ship's stacks removed and others shortened. But on July 1st of 1912, the Eastland listed 25 degrees while loading passengers in Cleveland. The company sold the problem ship, this time to the St. Joseph Chicago Steamship Company. Thinking that lowering the passenger count again would be the least time-consuming and costly way to resolve the ship's issues, the company reduced the maximum load to 2,500. The steamer returned to Chicago's docks, where it transported passengers between Chicago and Michigan, including for the annual Western Electric picnics. Factory employees had looked forward to the 1915 picnic for months. The company chartered five boats, including the Eastland, to carry the employees and their families across Lake Michigan to Washington Park. For most of the workers, the picnic was a highly anticipated event. The majority of the employees were Czech immigrants who worked six days a week and weren't given holidays off. They'd been looking forward to the much-needed time away from work. Over 7,000 tickets were sold for the event. To the workers, summer just wouldn't be summer without that picnic. The park had roller coasters, a merry-go-round, games, and treats for the kids. There was also a bowling alley, dancing pavilion, a beach, a ballpark, and plenty of picnic areas. Tickets were a dollar for adults, or 75 cents if purchased in advance. Boarding began early that July 24th. At 6.30 a.m., families gathered at Chicago's wharf near Clark Street Bridge. The morning was cool and damp though they held hope that the weather would improve. From the size of the crowd, it looked like the event had drawn more families than the previous year. So many employees brought their families that traffic to the docks was backed up for miles. While the ship's history might have been common knowledge on the docks, the people of Western Electric Company were completely unaware of the danger. No one bothered to tell Western Electric about the Eastland's issues either. The inspectors and harbormaster felt that the addition of the lifeboats made the ship safe enough. They didn't account for the weight of the lifeboats required as part of the Seamen's Act. The act had been passed earlier that year in the wake of the Titanic disaster and a number of other pressures. A federal law required that all ships, such as the Eastland, be retrofitted with lifeboats to account for at least 75% of the passengers. Happy, excited families lined up to board. Many of them had gotten up bright and early to be one of the first in line. They wanted the best seats. Federal inspectors stood by as boarding began. Much to the dismay of those on the dock, the weather didn't get any better. When it began to drizzle, people hurried aboard at about 50 passengers a minute, causing the ship to rock. Those who boarded first quickly moved below deck to stay out of the rain. 
Deckhands hauled up the gangplank, forcing a factory employee who'd been running late, one E.W. Sladkey, to make a running leap from the dock. Once aboard, he steadied himself and joined his co-workers. The band played ragtime for anyone who wanted to dance. Deck passengers leaned against the railing to call out to friends and co-workers still on the dock and awaiting passage on the next ship. With all the boarding, dancing, and people leaning against the rail, the harbormaster noticed the ship list a little too much toward the port. Some passengers noticed too, but didn't think much of it. Now that everyone had boarded, the Eastland seemed to right itself, putting the harbormaster, inspectors, and passengers at ease. But then, moments later, with the number of people moving from one side of the ship to the other, the Eastland began to rock once more. At first, the passengers thought it was a joke. Others thought they'd simply hit a series of waves that would subside. With more rocking, more people shifted around. The more people shifted, the more the ship rocked. By 7.23 that morning, the ship listed so far towards the docks that water poured in through the open gangways and into the engine room. The experienced crew knew what was happening and made their escape up the ladder onto the main deck. With the amount of water pouring in and the way the Eastland was listing, they had no intention of staying below deck while the ship capsized. Five minutes later, the Eastland rolled to a 45-degree angle. The ragtime music stopped abruptly when the piano barreled across the promenade deck and smashed into the port side wall, barely missing two passengers. Others weren't as lucky. A refrigerator slid across, pinning two women. Those who couldn't manage to hold on to the railing were pitched overboard. Water poured into the portholes and the deck below, where families had gone to get out of the rain. Passengers panicked. They scrambled to reach the stairs. Staying below would be a death trap. But pushing and shoving to the limited access points to the upper deck proved to be just that anyway. Another large piece of furniture crashed into the stairs, demolishing them, leaving those below without a way to escape as water flooded the ship. Families screaming on the Eastland were echoed by those watching in horror on the dock. One survivor later recalled thinking that he and the others resembled children falling down a hill. People rolled and slid across the deck as lunchboxes, furniture, and everything else not nailed down slid across too. Chairs and other debris crashed into passengers, sending people tumbling and knocking those standing at the railings loose. At 7.30, the Eastland flipped onto its side, in 20 feet of murky water. People were flung off the deck like they'd been swatted. Many couldn't swim. The ship, unfortunately, was still tethered to the dock. For a moment, passengers dotted the river's surface. No one had had time to get to a life preserver, much less a lifeboat. A sladkey, who'd made the stunning leap onto the ship, managed to climb over the starboard railing and walked across the hull and onto the dock without so much as getting his shoes wet. The captain had no intention of staying aboard and abandoned the ship, leaving passengers and crew to fend for themselves. Parents who could swim struggled to keep their children and infants afloat or from being swept away. Co-workers who had shown up at the dock for the next boat tossed crates and boards into the water in the hopes that drowning people could use them as flotation devices. The effort did more harm than good when the objects knocked some of them unconscious. More screams erupted from inside the ship as the decks below took on more water. One man on shore had been contemplating suicide. 
But on that day, he jumped into the water to rescue people. He wouldn't be the only hero. Helen Reppa, a nurse at Western Electric, didn't exactly have the day off. Still, the idea of working outside in a park rather than inside at a factory appealed to her. Her ship was due at the dock after the Eastland, and Helen couldn't wait to get there. But the trolley car she rode was stuck in traffic at Lake Street. As she thought about the festivities in the day ahead, screams erupted from the direction of the docks, loud enough to appear several blocks away and over the traffic. The screaming was like nothing she'd ever heard before, even in her own worst nightmares. Something horrible had happened at the docks, and all Helen knew was that somehow she had to get there and help. A mounted policeman galloped past the trolley, stopping in the intersection. Not that he needed to, but he signaled for all traffic to stop. Excursion boat capsized, he shouted. Look out for the ambulance. Helen ran to the front of the trolley. The driver tried to stop her, but she leaped off, and while the policeman cleared the intersection, she convinced the ambulance driver he might need an extra nurse. With their way clear, Helen and the ambulance crew sped off toward the docks. When she arrived, dock workers were using blowtorches on the Eastland's hull in an attempt to free those trapped below deck. The people stumbled around in shock. Others lay motionless, bleeding on the ground in the dock. In the water, passengers continued to scream and grab for anything they could, a small floating raft, bits of wood. Some grabbed other passengers, effectively drowning their co-workers and themselves in their panic to survive. Rescuers on the docks pulled victims from the water. Some looked seriously injured. Sizing up the situation, Helen chose to work on those who were unconscious first. Word of the disaster spread. Factory workers' family members gathered around the docks, hoping to catch a glimpse of a loved one who might have survived. Some stood all day, clutching each other and sobbing, hoping their missing family had somehow made it. Some staggered around, frantically calling for their children, husband, or wife. There weren't enough cars to transport the victims, so Helen hurried to the closest intersection and asked motorists for help. American Express sent a fleet of their trucks as well. Injured and critical survivors were transported to Memorial Hospital, though it was ill-equipped to handle so many patients at once. She noted that only two nurses were on duty and that they didn't have enough blankets. She asked to make a phone call and contacted the department store Marshall Field & Company, which sent over 500 blankets. By 8 a.m., efforts switched from rescue to recovery. Out of the 2,500 passengers plus crew, 844 people were dead. The ship and the waters had grown quiet. But for Helen Reppa, the screaming would never stop. When she returned from the hospital, she found navigating through the thick crowd almost impossible. Though there were no survivors left, she stayed, helping transport bodies to a nearby warehouse. A lone figure aimlessly wandered the alleyway. He muttered over and over, I lost them. I lost them all. He told Helen that his wife and three children had drowned. She comforted him for a moment before leaving to help move more bodies. Divers recovered those trapped below deck, mostly women and children who had sought shelter from the rain. 
The water had been so frigid their bodies were stiff and cold. Priests arrived to offer last rites, but finding no survivors, left. City workers skimmed the waters with nets to collect bodies that had floated away. The warehouse couldn't hold all the dead. The military set up the 2nd Regiment Armory as a makeshift morgue and laid out the deceased in neat rows, 85 bodies long. Around 4 p.m., Helen went home, away from the crowds and chaos. For a while, she stared at her clothes. Her white uniform and shoes were bloodstained and caked with mud. At the armory, the process for identifying the dead began at midnight. Thousands had gathered outside. Not all of them were anxious family members, though. A large part of the crowd were bystanders come to gawk at the bodies to get a closer look at the disaster for themselves. And, as despicable as it may seem, others who waited in line were thieves, looking to pocket the dead's personal belongings. Inside lay 58 infants and young children, 228 teenagers, and 557 adults. 175 women went home widows. Two of those women were pregnant. 84 men became widowers that day. 22 entire families were killed. Reporters painted the scene in all its gruesomeness. Headlines of the disaster and its graphic details were splashed across newspapers across the country. Enterprising boat captains charged 15 cents a person to view the wreckage up close. But with every story about a disaster comes a story about a survivor, someone who was supposed to be there but wasn't. And when it comes to the Eastland, we have a man named George. You see, George was late that morning. In fact, he didn't realize until the next day that his name was still on the manifest, and because of that, the newspapers had reported him dead. He went immediately to his parents' house to reassure them that he was safe. They were in for the happiest sort of shock. And it was a stroke of luck that paid off for many people in Chicago in the years to come. Rather than ending up as just one more name on a tragic list, George would go on to coach one of the city's legendary teams, the Chicago Bears. His name was George Hollis. It took 52 gravediggers working 12-hour days to prepare for the funerals. The Bohemian National Cemetery alone had 150 graves dug. On July 28th, Chicago became the city of funerals. 700 Eastland victims were to be buried on the same day. Among them was the entire Sindler family. The couple perished along with all five of their children, ranging in ages from 3 to 15. All seven white caskets arrived at the cemetery, stacked in the back of a Ford Model T. Marshall Field and Company provided 39 trucks due to the shortage of hearses. For the remainder of the victims, identification or other funeral plans were underway. All except for one small boy, known simply as number 396. Some at the armory couldn't bear to call him by a number, so they referred to him as Little Feller. It seemed the boy would go to his grave without anyone to claim him. He was taken to a funeral home, where two children recognized him. Now he had a name, Willie Novotny, just seven years old. He had remained unclaimed because it had taken his grandmother time to recognize Willie's parents and nine-year-old sister. 
United in death, the family was laid to rest on July 31st. Chicagoans who had heard of Little Willie's plight attended the service. The procession stretched for more than a mile. While families attended funerals, Cook County asserted jurisdiction over the inquiries. One attorney told reporters that the United States Steamboat Inspection Service was responsible. Though the city was quick to investigate, litigation over the disaster wasn't concluded for another 24 years. The cruise line's president and three officers were indicted for manslaughter. The captain and chief engineer were also indicted on charges of criminal carelessness. When the case finally went to court, the defense attorneys pointed out that the Eastland had successfully carried passengers for years without incident. The jury found no justifiable reason to hold the six men responsible, and all charges were dropped. After the disaster, the Eastland was dredged from the water, repaired, and renamed the Willamette. The newly renamed ship served as a naval vessel, where it remained stationed at the Great Lakes Naval Base. In August of 1943, the Willamette transported President Franklin D. Roosevelt during a 10-day excursion to Whitefish Bay, where he took part in discussing war strategies. The ship was decommissioned in 1945 and offered for sale. But even after renaming and renovation, the ship couldn't shake its reputation. After nine months and no takers, the ship was sold for scrap. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
Henry Tewksbury just wanted some sleep. He spent the evening of February 5th, 1887, entertaining a crowd in Windsor, Vermont, with a lecture on the Battle of Gettysburg. It seemed the crowd enjoyed the details, every gory one. His knowledge of the subject was extensive. The money he earned supplemented his income as a lawyer nicely. A close friend of his, who had first-hand knowledge of the war, attended the lecture. Smith Stervant had fought at Gettysburg as a teenager. After the lecture, he walked with Henry to the train station. The two were heading north to White River Junction. There, they would part ways. Henry planned to spend the night before returning home, and Smith would board the Montreal Express to start his shift as the conductor. Sleep would elude Henry, though. The White River Junction house didn't have any rooms that night, forcing Henry to walk back to the station in the bitter cold. Exhausted, Henry had no choice but to catch the Montreal Express back to Randolph, Vermont. The train had started its route in Boston, and Henry found it crowded with passengers headed to Montreal's Winter Carnival. After an hour and a half delay, the train was finally on its way. When Smith collected the tickets, he found his friend asleep, slumped over in his seat. He woke him and kidded Henry about the change in plans. Neither man realized this would be their last conversation. Henry fell fast asleep again, but the train swaying side to side woke him. As the train approached a bridge near West Hartford ten minutes later, he had a feeling something was wrong. Then the train lurched, and Henry felt a jolt. Having been in two train accidents before, Henry knew a couple things— that the wheels were running on the ties, and the train was about to derail. He jumped up and pulled the cord that would signal the brakeman of the issue. Elsewhere in the car, Smith also realized the problem and pulled the cord, too. The brakeman looked out the window. To his horror, the train was jumping the tracks as they approached the bridge, and a 40-foot drop to the river below. Instead of braking, he leapt from the train into the snowdrifts. The rear sleeper car left the tracks and plummeted into the river, taking several cars with it. The connection between one of the cars broke, which spared the rest. The falling cars crashed into the frozen river, breaking the ice. Other cars piled on top of it, crushing most of those inside. In seconds, the oil lamps burst into flames, igniting the wooden cars, draperies, and upholstery. A fortunate engineer who survived in one of the disconnected cars found the brakeman in the snowbank. Seeing as he wasn't hurt, the engineer ordered the brakeman to go and get help. It took him a while. He walked to a nearby farm and borrowed a horse to ride to White River Junction. Help wouldn't arrive for 45 minutes. Henry, still alive and pinned between two seats, frantically tried to free himself as the fire raged toward him. An elderly couple, also penned, cried and hugged each other as the flames engulfed them. Fearing the worst, Henry pulled his coat over his eyes so he wouldn't see the fireball reach him. Then he felt two men trying to pull him free. They almost gave up, but Henry's plea convinced them to keep trying. As the fire neared, the men pulled once more, freeing him, though breaking one of his legs in the process. They dragged him to safety near one of the bridge's stone supports. Then they went back for other survivors. Smith crawled toward them, totally engulfed in flames. Rescuers threw snow on top of him to douse the fire and managed to get him out of the car just in time. 
Help finally arrived, and Henry, Smith, and a few of the other survivors were taken to the nearby farmhouse. Smith died from his severe burns. Rescuers went back to the wreckage to find that the bridge had collapsed, sending debris on top of the now-burned-out cars. There would be no more survivors. For two days, rescuers searched the area. Most victims found had been burned beyond recognition. Others had slipped through the broken ice and into the river. To this day, there isn't an accurate number of victims. Of the 89 passengers and crew, it's believed that as many as 60 perished. An investigation into the disaster uncovered a defective rail, and some of the survivors sued the railway and won. New legislation established safety measures. Gas lamps were replaced by electric lights and national safety checks enforced. Over the next several years, railroad accidents dropped sharply. Not due to the lawsuits or money the railway companies paid out, though. It had more to do with the past that haunted them. As with the Titanic and Eastland, it took something irreplaceable and, for some, unforgettable. Lives. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.